Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets in the car, while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. So uh, the world is, of course, always changing. Uh, We know this to be true. And yet, I don't know about the rest of you, and this is going to probably vary greatly. Um, I was was actually talking about my wife with, with this right before I came in. She was like, what are, you, uh, what are you recording about today? And I was like, well, we're, we're going to be talking about this concept, Future Shock. And uh, she's like, oh, yeah, you've uh, explained it to me before. Can you explain it again? And I did. And she said, oh, that's not real. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I never feel that way. So uh, I do want to acknowledge straight up that not everyone is necessarily going to feel this way. It is, I guess, subjective. But I don't know. For me, I feel like there are times when it feels like change is accelerated or that the changes that are occurring in the world, social or technological or scientific or what have you, um, geopolitical, et cetera, are are kind of like the topiary animals in Stephen King's novel, The Shining. Um, in, uh, in the book, as opposed to the, the Stanley Kubrick movie, it's, it's not a hedge maze, it's hedge animals. And you look away and then you look back and they've moved in closer. Uh, so it's sometimes it feels like that to me with with advancements, technological advancements and so forth, that they've been steadily advancing on us while our backs are turned. And it's and we only begin to notice perhaps uh, seemingly too late uh, that, oh, these these things are basically here. OK, so you're saying in in this episode or this series, you wanted to talk about the idea of future shock. And this is brought on by some recent feelings about technology, primarily A.I. Yeah, I mean, I think A.I. is. Uh, is one of the main metrics of change that uh, a lot of people are talking about right now. AI has come up on the, the show quite a bit over the years, including the, the idea of AIs and creativity. Um, as recently as just a couple of years ago, me personally, I, I found that these concepts felt exciting, maybe a little bit threatening, but not in an immediate sense. Um, at the same time, there was also a lot of optimistic um, ideas concerning what the future might look like with generative AI and so-called creative AI systems in place, um, that AI would essentially be our partner in change. Uh, it would be a collaboration. I remember seeing you know, talks about this uh, and examples of how this would play out. Uh, you'd adapt to using these new tools as part of your creative process, while in other fields, individuals would reskill to adapt to the change. It, you know, it seemed like you know, there was kind of a uh, you know, a roadmap in place. Uh, and, it, you know, it eased any rising future shock you might have. Okay, so you used to feel more like whatever changes are going to be brought on by AI, we're, 
we're sort of uh, we're taking the proper steps to like cushion those blows. Yeah, or at least I mean, that not to say that I wasn't exposed to other ideas um, and more negative views of what could occur, but it seemed like there was enough positivity out there that I you know was able to sort of buy into it. And uh, then I remember before the pandemic, at some point, I forget which year this was, I attended a talk at the World Science Festival in which physicist Max Tegmark referenced uh, this idea, this kind of topography of human abilities and jobs, with the idea being that the higher elevations of of this topography, like the mountain peaks, were going to be the most protected from the rising sea levels of artificial intelligence. You can find this illustration online, but it's like down there in the water, that's where Jeopardy, chess, arithmetic, and rote memorization are. Like those are already underwater of, of AI. Uh, but then as you move up through the topography, eventually you're going to reach the heights of art, book writing, and science. So the, his idea was things like art. Uh, I'm looking, you've got the image here for me to look at too. Things like may, maybe uh, art, cinematography, writing, science, theorem proving. These are all like the peaks that are going to be the last things that AI can reach and and replicate. Right, right. And there would be other things in the lowlands that would be kind of like next to go, like vision and speech recognition, driving, for example. And, and not to say that this is, you know, now inaccurate or anything, but uh, at, the, at the time when I, was, when I first saw this image, you know, it was interesting, maybe somewhat concerning, but it still didn't feel immediate. Uh, but then in the summer of 2022, I chatted with Mike Sharples, the author of Story Machines, How Computers Have Become Creative Writers. Um, and uh, I know we, we had a lot of fun on some subsequent uh, listener mails using some of these um, technologies to generate text. Um, but I, I asked Sharples about this image, this idea from Max Tegmark. And I you know, asked him what he thought about this projection, you know, the idea that human book writing, for example, was in the highlands. And he said that he thought the waters were already considerably high. I guess one problem maybe affecting a uh, a picture like this or a topography like this is that it considers book writing as one thing. And whereas it might be uh, quite difficult for AI to write a certain kind of book aimed for a certain kind of audience, it might be quite easy for AI to write a different kind of book with a different purpose in mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to sort of throw in a sci-fi example, like if you were to, to find out, oh, the aliens are among us now and they are disguising themselves as people, the disguises are horrible. But the mere fact that they are now doing it is, is enough for alarm, you know? Um, yeah. I guess it's that sort of thing. Yeah, because right now, you know, can AI write, like, quote unquote, the great American novel? Uh, no. But can it do other things that can be passed off, at least in, you know, sort of like self-publishing marketplace and that sort of thing? Uh, you know, is it has it reached the point where it is of concern in education and publishing in general? Yes. I think I was just reading an article about people uh, relying on AI generated travel guides that are just supposed to be, you know, this is this is the kind of thing that you might imagine AI could do well because it's just sourcing publicly available information from the Internet mm -hmm. and then compiling that into a book. And it's like, oh, OK, so you can know here are the restaurants you can go to in this city or something like that. But uh, I, I think I recall in the article I was reading that people had been sent wildly astray <laughs> by these yeah. things. Um, but that's still stuff that seems like mere, uh, I don't know, compilation of publicly existing factual information should be m more easily achievable by AI than, say, writing a really beautiful, expressive literary novel that, you know, is meaningful to people. Yeah, yeah. And I actually have a friend who experimented with vacation planning via AI, and he thought it was amazing, you know, what you could do. But then, of course, the realization, well, then you've got to do the legwork of fact checking everything and right, making yeah. sure that it all lines up because you don't want to just, you know, go off with this being your main, uh, you know, bit of planning. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it, recently, it seems like there have been varying waves of, you know, excitement, enthusiasm, concern, malaise, con all of this concerning generative AI. You see this wave sort of catching people at different points. Like, I remember when I first saw what some of these um, visual generative AI programs could do, I was like, wow, that's amazing. Look at this. This is, this is, this is kind of great. It can make a dream um, like reality. And you can sort of create images that no one 
is going to create for commercial reasons or even, you know, for personal artistic reasons, and you can make them sort of real. And then I, for me personally, I don't know, that enthusiasm waned a lot when I, I just sort of began to see sort of like the soullessness of it, at least from my perspective, it, it certainly waned when I, when I saw, you know, visual artists that I know, or at the very least follow online and, you know, saw them registering their concern over how these systems worked, how they were sourcing information. And you continue to see people at different points. You know, some people are out there just discovering uh, some of this technology and they're at the high point and maybe they're going to stay up there for a little while. So I, I don't know. I, have to, I find I, I have to sort of voice, some, use some restraint when interacting with people. I don't want to be the person who is immediately trying to squash everyone's excitement for new technology. You know, specifically when it comes to the arts, uh, there has long been a kind of implicit model at work uh, in, in our culture. I, I'm sure you'll n know what I mean when I describe this that uh, says, well, an artist, uh, they, they will sort of have two simultaneous careers. They'll have the stuff that they care about working on that they don't they don't expect to make money on. It's difficult to make money on, but might actually be quite beautiful and meaningful. And we are glad that we have that stuff in the culture. It is enriching, even if it is not a major source of of money moving from place to place. And then on the other hand, they're like, well, they've got to have a day job. So they do, mm -hmm. you know, illustrations for advertisements or something like that, this kind of like like uh, not very inspired and not very fulfilling, but is the way they can use their skills uh, to make some money to pay the bills while they do this other thing. And so if that secondary thing is now it's like, oh, well, we can just get a, you know, a program to do that for us. I wonder how that affects the other half of, of the equation, because now you have an artist who can't subsidize their the, the kind of art they want to do by doing this other job. Yeah, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. It's it's like saying, oh, don't worry, we're not going to replace your your art. We just want to replace that that side gig you had, uh, where you were doing you know some mock ups of concepts for various projects. And yeah, that that could that may very well be the thing that, that's sustaining the other efforts. So I think that's one way that when people have said like, oh, you know, AI, it's not gonna, it's not going to replace great works of art. Uh, that that might be kind of missing some of the practical realities of what it means to make a living as an artist. Yeah. And so, yeah, all this was going on. And and then it wasn't too long after this that a, a number of people that, that we both know lost their writing and editing jobs to generative AI, uh, which seemed that was especially a moment for me, which seemed to come just shockingly fast. Uh, that it just it's like people were saying this is the sort of thing that could occur. And I still didn't think that it was on the cusp of happening. And then it did. You thought it was farther away. Yeah. It just yeah. it just seemed like those topiary animals were were farther off. Uh, yeah. But then suddenly they're right here. So, yeah, it just suddenly felt like a lot of these advancements were yeah were, were far closer to, to, to me and people around me than than they had been previously. It seemed like some of the rosy ideas concerning how it could all play out were maybe not quite as accurate. And I found that it made me it made me feel a bit anxious, you know, all while everything else in the news cycle was going on from congressional testimony about UFOs to the sort of general grinding stone of political coverage to the equally suddenly very real ramifications of climate change, which, of course, are, are kind of are basically reflected in that Max Tegmark uh, concept, you know, trying to understand the rising threat of AI by comparing it to the rising uh, literal rising uh, seawaters due to uh, climate change. Um, and uh, of course, it's, it's interesting to use one to, to understand the other when you know, the both suffer at times from this, uh, this, this lack of feeling uh, like a, an immediate concern to many people, even when well, here we are suddenly, uh, you know, just watch the news any given day and you can see it playing out in real time. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I didn't think about it much uh, at the time, but then later I was chatting with some friends and I was reminded uh, once more of Alvin Toffler's 1970 book, Future Shock, which I'd read myself for the first time maybe 10 years ago. Um, and uh, I thought, well, we should come back and, and revisit it. Like I want to, you know, wanted to revisit it at this point in, in my life. Um, I feel like there's more to discuss in terms of like where we are in the world at this point. Um, and it's just, it also deals with a number of, you know, stuff to blow your mind, um, you know, classic concepts of futurism and change. I always enjoy 
uh, reading about the predictions people made about the future from the distant past. So this book is now 53 years old. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's over half a century old. So, um, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to look back on because as you might expect, so many ideas are thrown out in this book that, you know, some hauntingly hit the mark. Some are way off base. Um, and, uh, many of, of them are just sort of like a, a snapshot of the time, like imagining, yeah, that this is, this is a book that came together in the late 1960s, you know, at this point of, you know, drastic change, uh, in America, in the world. And this is what, uh, one individual or a pair of individuals, uh, put together about all of it. There is a, a lot about hippies in this book. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of looking to what is the hippie culture subculture doing and how can this be like a magic ball, in a sense, to understand the future? And some of it does pan out, like some of the future predictions by looking at the hippies works, other things not so much, you know. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely get into some of those examples. Yeah. So as I was saying, I, I love these things, even when they're ludicrously wrong. I, I you know, I like Criswell predicts. Uh, and future events such as these will concern us all in the future because that is where we're uh, going to be living the rest of our lives. But I, like you, so I'd never read this book before. I just finished it for the first time literally hours before we started recording here. And I was struck by, yeah, a very interesting mix of reactions. On one hand, Future Shock uh, is, it's exactly the kind of book that I think one needs to be wary of. And I would character, I would put it in this category of charismatic, big cultural thesis books, mm -hmm. uh, books that have a kind of basically easy to understand charismatic idea at the core that's like, here's the thing that explains what's going on in culture. Books like that can be kind of uh, epistemically dangerous because it's very appealing to have to like land on a theory that finally, you know, culture is so confusing. I don't understand what's happening in the world today. And then, oh, here's a thesis that, that explains what's going on. Now I finally understand it. And you can like put use that as your lens that, that now the world makes sense. Uh, and so it is a book in a way like that, which is especially funny because there is a section in the book warning about books of that sort and th theories of that sort that explain everything about culture. Um, yeah. And, and I, if memory serves, they do kind of acknowledge like this book could could be exactly the, the sort of thing that could uh, be uh, like a maladaptive um, uh, reaction to future shock. Uh, exactly. If you just go all in on it. Exactly. Yeah. So they have that consciousness. And so I, I, I think that's fair. Uh, and that's a good kind of self-consciousness for uh, the author or authors. Maybe we can talk about whether we should be talking about the author as Alvin Toffler or Alvin and Heidi Toffler. Um, the, the book I read, the author name on it was Alvin Toffler. But from what I understand, they're now sort of understood to be co-authors, though she was sort of an anonymous co-author. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's my my understanding as well. He was a writer, a journalist, and a futurist. She was a researcher and an editor. Uh, according to her obit in the New York Times, she, quote, served an essential, though anonymous, collaborative role alongside her celebrated husband. And she is later, in later works, she is credited as co-author. Uh, so um, I think we'll probably be interchangeable. It's like sometimes we may say he when we could easily say they. Um, we may say Toffler, and other times we may say the Tofflers, uh, but I, th I think it's widely recognized that they work together on these. Okay, yeah. So for now, I'll say the Tofflers. I think the Tofflers do show that self-consciousness and acknowledge that, uh, which is useful. But like I said, it, it's always good to approach books like this cautiously because there are good books like this that can offer some good insights but rarely are they correct in everything they claim. And also, you just have to be conscious that I think books like this can be more appealing than they deserve. Like that, you know, be like, oh, the, the explanatory power they seem to offer can prove too alluring and can kind of easily hop over our defenses to arguments that we would notice are weak in another context. Like, uh, I remember at one point when it was making a point about... uh 
the diversity of uh, options available in the world today of, of things which you can, uh, you know, give your interest to or spend your time on. It said, quote, book clubs are finding it increasingly <laughs> more difficult to choose monthly selections that appeal to large numbers of divergent readers. And I, you know, at first you can just kind of like read that sentence and be like, yeah, yeah. And then I stopped and I was like, wait a minute, how would one know this? Like no evidence mm -hmm. of that claim is given. It's just sort of, it's something that's, oh, that sounds plausible. That's probably, but I have no idea if that statement is true. So, uh, the, and there's just like a lot of stuff like that in this book and books like it. Statements that kind of like, they, they're part of this march of evidence toward the the thesis about what's going on in culture, and they sound plausibly enough true. They're, they kind of fit into the rhythm of the argument being developed, and they just wash over you, and you think, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's so anyway, I guess my point is when you realize that's happening to you in a book, you should stop and think, okay, wait a minute, maybe I should be a little cautious here. Yeah, I mean, it, we've covered books of this nature before. I mean, the, the bicameral mind, uh, you know, I've talked about um, you know the works of Terence McKenna on the uh, the show before, and you know these these are I think these are uh, you know books by individuals who had some amazing ideas, some amazing viewpoints, some um, things to say that were at times important, at times entertaining, and you know also sometimes perhaps uh, you know, incorrect. But uh, yeah, it's like do you go all in on it? Do you uh, do you go all in on the stone ape? A hypothesis, um, or do you just you know you read it, you hear it, but you also uh, you know keep a foot in in other realities as well. Uh, so yeah, I think it is it is important to to maybe not go all in on an idea like this, but I still think that yeah, there is a lot to learn from it and to uh, to draw out of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the healthy attitude is when you're reading something like this, don't get sucked in and say, oh, here's the person who's explaining it all. This is now the teacher and I am the student. Instead, you regard this as this is a person who's making a series of claims and like remember to evaluate those claims. Uh, and I, and like I said, I think some of the claims made here are pretty good and are pretty insightful. And I'll identify those as we go on. Now, uh, it also helps that Future Shock just has a great title, the, the title of the book and also the, the title of the central thesis, the idea that, that, that we as individuals and we as a society are suffering from Future Shock. Um, so it's no surprise that even, even, you know, certainly this book was a huge success when it came out and a lot of people read it. It was translated into so many different languages. It's my understanding it's never been out of print. Um, People continue to, to read it and, and other works by the Tofflers to this day. Uh, so a lot of people were exposed to the ideas in, those, uh, in this book, but also just the title itself inspired various things. So in the British 2000 AD comic book series, there is a regularly occurring um, a section called Thrag's Future Shocks. Uh, I don't think it has anything really to do with the, the central premise here, other than it sounds cool. Is it uh, from, Thrag or Tharg? I see Tharg. Oh, it's Tharg. I'm sorry. Yes. Tharg's Future Shocks. I okay. don't know that I've ever actually read Tharg's Future Shocks. I've read a lot of Judge Dredd um, over the years, but uh, and a few things outside of that in 2000 AD. But yeah, I don't think I've read Tharg per, per se. Who is Tharg? Um, he's just this, he's kind of like, you know, a Crypt Keeper, I think, you know? Oh, Okay. Nice. F futuristic monster crypt keeper of, of, of 2000 AD. I see. Um, there was also, and I've never seen this, but from 1976 through 1979, James Brown hosted a variety show, uh, and it was called Future Shock, um, which, again, I don't know how, how, the, how the musical content here was supposed to actually be instilling us with Future Shock. I think it just sounded cool. Um, <laughs> There's also a 1994 Vivian Schilling B-movie called Future Shock. has Bill mm -hmm. Paxton in it. Uh, I haven't seen it, but uh, I get the impression that it is only like surface level getting into the idea of Future Shock. Uh, I think I watched it maybe freshman year of college. Uh, I yeah. do not remember anything about it at all, except that it wasn't good. It's not the, what, the tour de force that um, uh, Soul Taker was, right? <laughs> Wasn't she also in Soul Takers? I don't remember. The Soul Taker movie? Okay. Oh, but uh, but we're bearing the lead here because there was also a wonderful <laughs> 1972 documentary based on the book Future Shock uh, covering some of the, you know, the key ideas involved here, hosted by Orson Welles. Oh, the French. <laughs> oh, boy. This is uh, this this you can definitely find on streaming services, not in great quality, but in, you know, 
semi-watchable quality. Uh, it's, it's somewhat cheesy, uh, still a lot of fun, certainly leads into the more theatrical aspects of, of, of the whole premise. And, um, and Orson Welles hams it up a lot. Um, but it does have some effective moments of weirdness. There's, there's one part very early on that, um, that really resonated with me when I first saw it, and it continues to, to sort of resonate with me. Uh, so early in the documentary, we see Orson Welles. Uh, this is like late career Orson Welles. Uh, we, we see him at an airport having apparently just landed on an airplane. He's smoking a pipe or a cigar or something and telling us about uh, the base, uh, the way he's talking. It sounds like, you know, he came up with Future Shock. Um, <laughs> he says, um, in the course of my work, which takes me to just about every corner of the globe, I see many aspects of a phenomenon which I'm just beginning to understand. Our modern technologies have achieved a degree of sophistication beyond our wildest dreams, but this technology has exacted a pretty heavy price. We live in an an age of anxiety, a time of stress, and with all our sophistication, we all are in fact the victims of our own technological strength. We are victims of shock, of future shock. And I'm, Mm. I'm, I'm not accurately presenting it here, but I, the way he delivers that last line always like kind of struck a chord with me because, you know, Orson Welles, even a late career, still a master showman. He, uh, you know, he's hamming it up a, a lot in this uh, particular documentary. But in that mm. one line, I feel like he pours a great deal of compassion into it. You know, he's telling you, look, everything that you've been feeling, perhaps without being able to identify all the causes or even put a name to it. There's a reason you feel like this and we can put a name to it. It's not your fault and you are not alone. I mean, Orson Welles is a great, uh, great host to sell any concept. He can really <laughs> infuse it with feeling. He's uh, If you never listened to the outtakes of Orson Welles uh, recording commercials about frozen peas and getting really mad at how the copy is bad, I recommend looking <laughs> that up. Every year, peas grow there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think oh, I've seen that. It's really good. But uh, But, you know, I feel like, you know, this is something that, Perhaps some people needed to hear in 1970 and maybe some people need to hear today, you know. Um, so, I, yeah, I thought it would be be rewarding to revisit some aspects of the Toffler's Future Shock concept here. Talk about how it stacks up or doesn't stack up to today's world and, you know, what we might learn from revisiting the concept. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. 
Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Okay, so like 53 years on now, we're doing a retrospective on Future Shock. Well, it is the future, Joe. It is where we're going to be living the rest of our lives. Yeah. So uh, just a little bit more detail here, just to get some dates. Alvin Toffler lived 1928 through 2016. Heidi lived 1929 through 2019. Um, Alvin Toffler is credited with coining the term Future Shock in a 1965 article for Horizon magazine. And then um, they spent the next five years researching, interviewing, editing, writing, uh, putting together this book. Uh, book first published in 1970. And in short, it attempted to capture the sort of bleeding edge of a rapidly advancing world of science, technology, mass communications and economics. Um, and on these counts alone, you know, it's often cited as having predicted things like personal computers, the Internet, cable television. And, uh, of course, the current archenemy of, of many companies, telecommuting. <laughs> now, one trick you can always pull as a futurologist is to make lots of predictions. And if you, as you know, anybody who uh, knows anything about gambling odds knows, if you make lots of predictions, you're just upping the chances that some of them will hit, even if a lot of them miss. And then people remember the hits, but not the misses. However, I would say in, in the Toffler's defense, some of the things they get right, I think they do get right in a pretty thoughtful way. Like it seems actually like they're working out the steps and predicting in a in a fairly deterministic fashion how their world at the time would lead to this thing that did fundamentally actually happen, though maybe not all the details always happen the way they think. Like at one point they do talk about a future of having personally curated, uh, personalized news feeds, but they're mm. talking about these as print-on-demand newspapers. Mm, yeah, so the spirit of the thing is it certainly holds up. I mean, that's how so many people get their news now, you know, social media feed. Uh, but it's not a printed newspaper. Um, also, they kind of present this as if it's, like, pretty much a great thing. And <laughs> I think... <laughs> Uh, I think, yeah, you, you, but you can't expect people uh, to, you know, always work out the implications of everything. So it's still, I think that's fairly insightful. Yeah. So just from the, like the, the futurology angle. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, this is the kind of thing you see in other works, either like nonfiction futurology, but also science fiction, you know, Neuromancer by William Gibson has some, some great ideas about uh, like a virtual, uh, you know, cyber future, but at the same time, like they're still using fax machines, stuff like that. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, sci-fi is full of that. Uh, but I, I think one of the things, of course, that really separates Future Shock from so many of these other nonfiction works is that, uh, th I mean, this is where the title comes in, right? It's not just about what the future will consist of, but how are human beings going to cope with these changes and the pace of these changes. So uh, the Topplers were apparently amazed at how little at the time there seemed to be on the topic of uh, adaptivity, uh, especially considering, you know, that you had people talking about, you know, these are the, the advancements that are going to occur. This is where our technology is taking us. And, you know, we're, we're going to adapt to these changes. Uh, he writes, quote, in the most rapidly changing environment to which man has ever been exposed, we remain pitifully ignorant of how the human animal copes. And, you know, it's interesting how a lot of what he's observing here there in 1970 is still the case now, like how many different, you know, technology companies are, are pushing some sort of new thing that's going to, uh, you know, break the old pattern of how we live our lives, but they haven't really worked out all, all the uh, potential problems. Um, like this is just, you know, part of it. Like here's, here's how we're going to communicate now. No, we didn't think about how this might lead to radicalization and so forth. Yeah, I mean, so if the if the spirit of the uh, technological industries can be summed up as move fast and break things, 
they're trying to look at, okay, if humans are the things that are getting broken, how does that happen? What happens when yeah. the humans break as a result of, of these changes in technology and their downstream effects on society? Yeah. And so like what happens when humans break due to rapid advancements in technology? That's essentially future shock, according to the Topplers. Now, one thing I, I think, again, uh, about these like big cultural thesis books you always have to be careful of is uh, it's it's very appealing Anytime somebody says, here's how now is totally different than anything that ever happened before. And, you know, that's always it's always like appealing to think that you live in a unique time in history in a way. But I think the specific argument they're making is pretty well grounded. In fact, I think you can pretty well show that like and the, the core of their uh, the factual basis of uh, the idea of future shock is that. Technology is changing faster and and changing our lives faster than any other time in human history. And I think they're correct about that. That's pretty much inarguable, I would say. Yeah. Um, there are times, though, where it's like, let's just follow the these various extrapolations or like the worst possible uh, you know, ramifications of a given trend. Uh, and this is especially true in the TV special, the, the documentary. Uh, there's like a part where they're talking about an artificial elbow, one more step towards an artificial man, where it's like, I mean, I guess maybe sort of, but really, I don't know. Well, and also like you could accurately point out at the time the the density of new medical breakthroughs at, you know, in, in the late at the in the late 60s as they were writing this book. Uh, was just huge. Like there's so many medical break breakthroughs recently compared to what happened to a similar, you know, 10 year chunk of time the century before or before that. So like, yes, things are definitely changing faster, but that leads to parts where they, I think there's one part where they're like, you know, with the new heart transplants and other organ transplants, will this lead to roving gangs of murderers who kill people to harvest their organs for transplants? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that that seems like, wow, we're really just following all the, the worst case possibilities here to this post-apocalyptic vision of um, of liver thieves. Fortunately, in the future, you can also implant tracking devices in your liver so that you can know where they took it and who's got your liver now. Yeah. But then what do you do when you encounter a, a man made entirely from stolen livers? <laughs> and now he's a separate person. They don't explore that idea. But yeah, there's, they, they did hold back on a few things, I guess. Uh, but actually, when you come back to the so it's kind of funny, the artificial elbow one step closer to an artificial man like that's funny. But also it does get it uh, something they do in the book that I think kind of makes sense, which is they're saying when we have these, say, like uh, biomedical uh, technological biomedical breakthroughs that can change out human body parts and maybe even can affect human brains and things like that. Uh, it may well affect, it may well force us to reckon with uh, medical ethics problems that we've never had to consider before. And what happens mm. when we're facing brand new medical ethics situations that have never existed before and we're facing tons of them and they're coming on rapidly? That is a real thing to be concerned about, like how fast uh, new medical technologies are coming online will present scenarios of things that can be done to and with human brains and human bodies and human embryos and things that we've never had to work out this problem before of what's the right thing to do here. And it puts you in a, in a tough situation of decision making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's where the future shock again kicks in. <laughs> the, the idea that yeah, you, you, you think, well, an artificial man will never make that. And then suddenly there's an artificial man and then you're like, well, now I'm confounded. Now I have the future shock. <laughs> now, in uh, discussing the, the shape of future societies in the book, uh, it's also worth noting the language is not always as sensitive as it would be today, uh, even as it gets some things you know, very wrong and some things right about the future shape of, say, the family. Um, specifically, in discussing the possibility of a future in which homosexual marriage is common and in which same-sex couples use adoption to grow their families. Um, everything is, uh, is basically presented by the Toffler as matter of fact, but the words marriage and parents are placed in quotations, which certainly feels offensive reading it today. Yeah, with these kind of things, again, it's, I feel like there's a mix of uh, things going on. It, at some points, it feels kind of uh, open-minded and progressive and, uh, and, and accepting about uh, different ways of thinking about family arrangements and stuff like that. But then also there are parts where it takes, 
it takes like moments to emphasize how weird everything will feel. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think maybe it's part of the thesis that, that would be true that like there will be new social arrangements that not everyone will uh, will immediately accept or will know what to, you know, how to incorporate into their view of the world, which is just true. Uh, but sometimes it can feel like, you know, they're suggesting like, wow, look at these weird people, which is not very nice. Yeah, yeah, like there's a there's a certain tone deafness in labeling a section homosexual daddies. This is a, a part about parenting, yeah. as if the concept were just altogether futuristic, and that history and contemporary 1970 did not contain plenty of gay men who were also fathers. Yeah. Um, so I mean that again, just it doesn't hold up. So, but at the same time, they're essentially correct on the future of same same sex couples and their families, while also being somewhat off the mark when it comes to, say, the possible future of the you know, relaxing of polygamy laws. Because, again, coming back to the hippies, they were like, well, hippies are living in communes. Hippies are taking, having you know, multiple spouses. Therefore, this will be part of the future as well. Yeah. Uh, it hasn't really uh, worked out that way. Yeah, they predict like uh, that th there will be a rise in like five parent families where each of the parents can specialize in different things and all that mm -hmm. because it will be necessary because of the technology and the economies of the future. Yeah, and you see similar things in some of the like, the sci-fi of the time period as well. Um, Joe um, Haldeman's 1974 book, The Forever War. Um, I believe we've talked about this one on um, uh, Weird House Cinema because uh, he was involved in the writing of... Um, Oh, goodness. Robot jocks. Oh. Um, but uh, The Forever War is a great book about interstellar war fought across time and with time dilation playing an enormous factor in the lives of the soldiers in this war. Um, and it it kind of progressively depicts the like the sexual politics of an imagined future as the character central character keeps dipping into societies and technologies that have advanced significantly since he last like jumped across time and space. Um, and. For the most part, it feels, you know, pretty like liberal uh, in its and um, open-minded in its uh, consideration of of future societies and future um, sexuality. But it is also like it ends up, you know, you come up with sort of futuristic lingo for describing all of this. So there are a lot of dis discussions of quote unquote homosex, which which feel a bit weird uh, reading the book uh, today, uh, even if it is discussed as like a logical social progression in the novel itself. Uh, yeah, I, I have not read that book, uh, but that makes sense. And so th there are plenty of things, I think, in this book from 53 years ago that did not age wonderfully. Um, so some of it would be like ways of talking about uh, things, even if th I think the idea of the authors is to portray them somewhat sympathetically. Yeah, just the language used uh, feels not as sympathetic as the authors would probably want if they were writing it today. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Okay. 
Picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, to, to come back to the, like the, to the central thesis here, um, future shock itself, they do write of it as a disease, as a uh, quote-unquote social illness. Um, they write, quote, future shock is the dizzying disorientation brought on by the premature arrival of the future. It may well be the most important disease of tomorrow. Um, I do like that, that term, the premature arrival of the future, which, of course, makes sense and doesn't make sense at the same time, uh, but does kind of adequately sum up this feeling where it's like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Are we already at this point uh, in our technological uh, advancement? Well, I feel like we should get more into the specifics of what they mean when they say future shock. What exactly is this condition or disease or state of uh, state of being they are describing? Well, they, they do point out that it does have some things in common with the concept of culture shock, which was already a buzzword at this time point, uh, especially for Americans traveling to other cultures and feeling overwhelmed by it. And culture shock alone would probably be a fascinating topic for us to talk about. I was reading that uh, there was a Canadian anthropologist by the name of uh, Calervo Oberg, who in 1954, uh, like basically mapped out this kind of adjustment period of culture shock. So there's like a honeymoon period. And then there's this period called negotiation. And this is a, a high anxiety period, followed by adjustment, and then ultimately adaptation. So, you know, already we have a pre-existing model of like what happens when you're thrust into a different social, geographic um, you know, world, um, you know, you have like maybe a period of excitement and then you start feeling weird about everything. Then you go through some adjustment and then you eventually reach this point where you were adapted to it. So their idea is that future shock is like culture shock. So culture shock is when you're plunged into a culture that, that you are not adapted to. So you can't predict people's reactions appropriately. You don't know what the customs are. You don't understand everything that people are saying. You don't know exactly how to communicate correctly. There are things all around you that you don't know how to use or interact with. And over time, you can adapt to this in a country as you become, uh, yeah, accl uh, acclimated to the local culture. You learn what everything's for. You learn the language. You learn better how to communicate. You learn what the customs are and so forth. But what they're saying is that imagine there's culture shock, but it's for the whole world and it's for your own culture also because the culture that you're being plunged into, the unfamiliar environment, is not a different place, but it's a different time. And it just keeps changing. So unlike yeah. with culture shock, where you can eventually, you can look forward to saying, okay, this is a temporary experience, and then I'll go back to my own culture where I know how to predict things and how to do things and interact with people and communicate. Uh, in this, you can't go back. There's no way to go home. There's only the future, and it's just going to keep changing. And in fact, it's just going to keep changing faster. Yeah, which, you know, just that description may, may uh, you know, raise some folks' anxiety. Yeah, this feeling that, like, you, you can't go back to, to something that felt comfortable. You're just going to be in, like, technological freefall uh, <laughs> for the duration of your life. They write that future shock, quote, is a time phenomenon, a product of the greatly accelerated rate of change in society. It arises from the superimposition of a new culture on an old one. It is culture shock in one's own society. And I think an important thing to understand about their vision of culture shock is that it's not just the standard conscious resistance to change that, you know, people often exhibit and that we, uh, 
that in some ways is associated with kind of like cultural conservatism or something that there's like, a you know, oh, I like things how they used to be. I don't want them to change. Instead, they're saying that, well, of course, there is that. But then there's also something that just affects people more broadly, which is that the technology in our surroundings is changing and it's changing economics and business and culture and everything so fast that even for people who are not consciously resistant to change, they're in a kind of state of heightened anxiety all the time, trying to figure out what's going on and adapt to it. Yeah, yeah. And these adaptions, you know, th this is something we'll, we'll get into in the next episode, I think. You know, the, these various ideas of, you know, again, like more broadly, like what are the, the defining characteristics of future shock, but also what are some of the maladaptive ways that people end up coping with future shock? I, I find this uh, section very interesting. Um, so, yeah, the, these are going to be some of the key areas we dive into. The, the book obviously spends a lot of time approaching the topic from different angles, social, technological, business, employment. Uh, it gets into transience, uh, disposable society, population issues, again, modular human beings and cybernetics, all sorts of stuff. We're not going to try to cover everything, but we're going to at least cover some of these key bits and some of the, the things that maybe spoke to us the most uh, revisiting this concept in the year 2023. All right. So, yeah, I think we're going to have to call this first episode here, but we will be back next time to talk about some of these central ideas in the book, what we think about them, whether we think they were on track or not, uh, and uh, what this book like, what a book of futurology looks like 50 years later. Yeah. Yeah. So we will see you, gentle listeners, in the future. Um, so that'll be on Thursday. Uh, a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Listener Mail on Mondays, a short-form artifact or monster fact on Wednesdays. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film. And uh, if everything goes according to plan, this week's weird film will also be one that is concerned to some degree with the future. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.